Welcome to the new episode of American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, and lore of America's past. Show is hosted by Cody Beck and Troy Taylor, and we want to welcome you to our fourth season, Haunted New Orleans. In the many weeks ahead, we'll be revealing the history, mystery, spirits, scandals, and sins of New Orleans, a city we believe is the most haunted in America. Each episode will turn a page of New Orleans' historical record and will shine a light on the darkness that lurks within, whether it be a ghost story, a horrific crime, or an unsolved mystery. We hope you'll enjoy the new season of the podcast. There are many strange tales waiting for us in a place that some call the Big Easy, and we're willing to bet You'll be listening to a lot of these episodes with the lights on. New Orleans is a city that was literally born in sin. From the original charters that were based on fraud to the emptying of the French prisons to provide the first settlers to the region, it started off on a bad foot. Those problems were followed by widespread government corruption, the highest murder rate in America, rampant prostitution, frequent lapses in any civilized moral code, and as a couple of local historians put it, more ghosts than there are wrought iron balconies in the French Quarter. To put it bluntly, New Orleans has a very long and very colorful history of crime, vice, spirits, and sin. And this seems to be a very appropriate reason for us to dedicate an entire season of the podcast to it. New Orleans began as a hot, waterlogged settlement of mud and mosquitoes in the early 18th century. The first colonists were French. The entire region had been claimed for France by the explorer La Salle a couple of decades before, but no one really knew what to do with it. Aside from controlling the mouth of the Mississippi River, there was little to offer the crown but the rights to a large, wet piece of land. But conquering the New World was not all about adventure. It was also about money. Colonies and exploration were expensive, and by 1700, the French were broke. The Bourbons of France were approached by a Scottish man named John Law, who created a New World company in which the French could invest and thereby settle the lower Mississippi Valley. In reality, the plan was a scheme to bilk money from the investors in return for selling them Louisiana. Later, when it turned out that Law's company was merely a large confidence game, many of the settlers decided to ignore that and stay on. In order to make his scheme pay off, Law needed to turn the backwater shacks located at a crescent bend of the river into a city. And 1718 Nouvelle Orleans was born. It was named in honor of the French regent, the Duke of Orleans. Law appointed Jean-Baptiste Lamont Sir de Winvilla as the governor. He led 25 carpenters and a handful of volunteers, okay, former convicts, into a cypress swamp that was teeming with snakes and alligators and started them working on building sheds and barracks. As work slowly progressed, he sent Law's investors glowing descriptions of the climate in New Orleans, the fertility of the soil, and many other advantages of the new town. Other French officials, though, eh, they felt a little less optimistic about the site. They complained of the flat and swampy ground, the plague of crayfish, the frequent fogs, thick woods, clouds of mosquitoes, and the, quote, fever-laden air. And by that, they meant hot, 
hotter than anyone from France could have ever imagined. The heat and humidity of New Orleans has always been one of the city's curses. It's damp in the winter and brutally hot in the summer. In the early days, shoes and other articles of clothing commonly mildewed if left on the floor overnight. Basements don't exist, and walls were often too wet for plaster to stick to them. In the 1840s, New Orleans earned the nickname of the Wet Grave because of the difficulties encountered in burying corpses. The custom of burying the dead in above-ground tombs began soon after and continues today. As work continued, another problem was realized, the Mississippi River. The work site was constantly flooded, and there was talk of moving the settlement to another location, but then levees were added, which seemed to help keep out the water, even if it did very little to keep away the snakes and the alligators. Meanwhile, John Law was continuing with his scheme. With the aid and encouragement of the government, he started a land and stock selling campaign that soon sent all of France into a frenzy of speculation. The national currency was inflated for Law's plans, and what turned out to be a colossal fraud drove the country to the verge of financial ruin. Law had nothing to back his stock except for inflated promises of the immense profits that Louisiana was going to produce. But to start the flow of wealth, Law needed colonists, and he was having trouble getting them. He had promised his investors that he would have a colony of 6,000 settlers and 3,000 slaves by 1727. To get them, the government began ransacking the jails and hospitals. Disorderly soldiers, black sheep of distinguished families, political suspects, thieves, vagabonds, and smugglers were kidnapped and shipped under guard to New Orleans. To those who would go willingly, Law's company promised free land, provisions, and transportation to Louisiana. They were promised riches, wealth, and shares in gold and silver mines, which didn't actually exist. The first colonists arrived in June 1718, 300 willing, although hopelessly misled, immigrants, and nearly twice that number in soldiers and convicts. They crowded into rough sheds and tents and worked to make the best of the situation they found themselves in. The biggest problem soon turned out to be the shortage of women. Governor Bienvela begged for women to be sent to the colony because he wrote, quote, the white men are running in the woods after the Indian girls. In 1720, they came up with a plan to deal with that shortage. They emptied the jails of Paris of all of the prostitutes. The ladies of the evening were given a choice, serve their term in prison or become a colonist in Louisiana. Those who chose the New World quickly became the wives of the men most starved for female companionship. Not everyone was thrilled with this idea. When a worried priest suggested that sending away all the immoral women would improve the culture of the province, the governor in Louisiana at the time replied, quote, if I send away all the loose females, there will be no women left here at all. Well, it wasn't long before John Law's scheme fell apart. The investors wanted someone to blame for the disaster and came after Law and his board of directors. They decided to blame everything on Governor Bienvela, who was demoted, but he didn't really mind. By now, all he wanted to do was finish building his city, and he did. By 1827, the population had doubled. Streets had been laid out and named, and in the spring of that year, Ursula Nunns had arrived in the city at his request to start a school and a hospital. The nuns were also in charge of the fils à la cassette, or the casket girls, who had been chosen from good French families to come to New Orleans and become wives of some of the upstanding local men. Before leaving France, the young women were given a small chest containing two coats, two shirts, and undershirts, six hats, 
and other pieces of clothing. It's believed that the nickname of these women came from the wooden chests they were given. The first casket girls arrived in New Orleans in 1728 and continued to arrive at regular intervals until 1751. They were all lodged together, and during the day, the men of the colony were permitted to see them in order that a choice might be made. At night, they were guarded by soldiers. Well, husbands were soon found for all of them. Strangely, by some bizarre happening, none of the prostitutes that had been brought to New Orleans as wives for the men of the colony apparently ever had children. On the other hand, the casket girls seem to have been extraordinarily fertile, each becoming the mother of what must have been a hundred children, who in turn were also blessed with large families. Proof of these biological miracles is offered by the fact that practically every native family of New Orleans is able to trace its ancestry back to one of the casket girls, and never to those unfortunate young women who came to Louisiana instead of waiting out their sentence in jail. That was a lot of sarcasm at work there, if you hadn't caught that. But the New Orleans activities of the era did not consist merely of building a city or starting a family. In less than 10 years, the city had acquired a reputation for being a town of crime and loose morals. The ready-made underworld that had been dumped into the region was becoming restless. Murders and robbery were becoming frequent occurrences, and it seemed that no man's life or property was safe. The rabble that had been sent to New Orleans had been promised a life of ease with no other labor than might be required to scoop up nuggets of gold from the ground. Work was abhorrent to many of these colonists, mostly those plucked from the French prisons, and they refused to perform any actual labor. Instead, they spent their time drinking, fighting, and attempting to steal enough money to enable them to leave the colony. While with no one else to do the work that needed to be done, the solution to the problem seemed to be the importation of slaves, which would change the face of the city forever, as we'll start to explore in our next episode. Bienvilla, who was restored to the governor's office again, left for France in 1724, not to return for seven years. While he was away, the settlement began to be harassed by the nearby Chickasaw Indians, with whom the governor had managed to keep peace. Well, these problems, along with the exposure of John Law's scheme, were bad, but things were about to get worse. The next governor of the region, the Marquis de Vaudrille, created a government in the city that would remain unrivaled for its corruption until the 20th century. The Marquis wanted to bring the life of the French court of Versailles to New Orleans. He held grand balls, elaborate state dinners, and theatrical presentations that must have seemed really out of place in a city with unpaved streets and unlighted streets, stretches of alligator-infested swamps and dingy clapboard houses, but he was determined to bring culture and color to New Orleans. But beneath the gaudy goings-on was scandal, bribery, and graft. The Marquis filled the important government positions with relatives. He granted trade monopolies to merchants on the condition that he be given a large fee and a percentage of the profits. He confiscated and sold provisions that had been sent for the military and then issued cheaper goods to the soldiers. And he spent most of his time improving his own private fortune. The thieves, killers, and prostitutes had been sent to New Orleans still made up, if not the majority, at least a large and disturbing minority of the region's inhabitants. Under the Marquis Lax rule, they thrived in the city, and it became more than ever the home of a vicious and criminal element who devoted themselves to stealing, fighting, and drinking in the various taverns and gambling houses that had appeared along the riverfront. The area in which these resorts were situated became the first vice district in the city making up nearly one-third of the area that later became the French Quarter. 
No attempt was made to try and regulate this area until late in 1750, when it was discovered that a great deal of the paper money being circulated in the colony was counterfeit. Since the currency was issued by the Marquis, this was a blow to his private accounts, so he immediately ordered an investigation. All the counterfeiters, not surprisingly, managed to escape. Alarmed by the conditions discovered in the investigation, the Marquis created a series of police regulations, which went into effect on February 18, 1751. This was the first attempt made by New Orleans officials to try and regulate vice, the sale of liquor, and the actions of criminals in the city. And like many of the attempts that followed in the years to come, the new laws failed miserably. Most of the taverns, brothels, and gambling dens that were closed when the laws went into effect were open and operating again at full speed when the Marquis was appointed as the governor of Canada and left New Orleans in February 1753. Not surprisingly, he celebrated his new post with an elaborate dinner for 200 guests and a magnificent fireworks show. In 1762, France passed the ownership of Louisiana to Spain in the secret treaty of Fontainebleau. That same year, Spain entered the Seven Years' War, which was the European arm of the French and Indian War, just in time to share defeat with France. As part of the Treaty of Paris at the end of the war, France had to give up its holdings in North America. But New Orleans and Louisiana had been given to Spain the year before the war started. Well, news traveled pretty slowly in those days, so no one in New Orleans had any idea they had become Spanish colonists until months after it had already happened. Suddenly, they found themselves under the control of the much-hated Spanish governor, Don Antonio de Aloa. They didn't plan to put up with that for long. In late 1768, 600 New Orleans citizens mounted the first revolutionary expedition of Americans against a European government. The revolutionaries' ranks were mostly made up of Acadians, French farmers from Nova Scotia who had been driven from their homes during the war. They ended up in New Orleans, which they assumed was a safe haven when they arrived. They were fiercely protective of their freedom, and when they heard rumors that the Spanish planned to sell them into slavery, they revolted. On November 1st, Don Antonio, terrified by the uprising, sailed for Havana. With the expulsion of De Aloa, the colonists believed they had thrown off the yoke of Spain, and the conspirators discussed the formation of a republic independent of European rule. But the Spanish were not going to lose their new colony so easily. His Majesty Carlos of Spain, angered by the revolution, sent a 2,600-man mercenary army to New Orleans to retake the city. Don Alexander O'Reilly, an Irishman in the service of Spain, led the force. He later earned the nickname Bloody O'Reilly after he sent all of the revolutionaries to their deaths. It's in this terrible incident where one of the oldest ghost stories in New Orleans history has its roots. According to legend, on certain nights, the crisp, clear voice of a man can be heard singing the Catholic notes of Kieri Eleison, in the air around the St. Louis Cathedral, located in what is now Jackson Square. The voice comes from nowhere, the stories say, because it belongs to a ghost. The spirit was once a priest, Pierre Dagobert. He arrived in New Orleans in 1745 and was beloved by the people of the city. He was more than just another priest to them. He cared for the sick, was a benefactor of the poor and the widowed, and embraced the people. He also had a singing voice, it was said, which could be compared to that of an angel's. 
After the rebellion against the Spanish, Bloody O'Reilly arrived in the city to restore order. He slaughtered everyone he could find that had been involved in the rebellion, but soon discovered that even that was not enough to obtain the names of the rebellion's ringleaders. He sent out spies who mingled with the inhabitants of New Orleans, and soon they assembled a list of ten suspects. In October 1769, the ten men who planned the rebellion were arrested and put on trial. O'Reilly himself served as the judge and the jury, and on October 24th, five of the rebel leaders were executed. A sixth man was stabbed to death with a bayonet while awaiting trial, and he also died. Well, O'Reilly refused to allow the dead men to be buried. He wanted the bodies on public display to serve as a reminder for what would happen to those who rebelled. The corpses were left out to rot in the rain and the heat, guarded by soldiers. The people were shocked and appalled, but there was nothing they could do. But something happened one night that's never been explained. The mourning families were each visited by Pierre Deuilbert, who brought food and comfort to them. He arrived at their homes, and one by one, he brought them to the cathedral and locked them in a small room. As the night went on, he came and went, each time leaving a sobbing woman and sometimes a few sleepy, frightened children behind. Then at some point in the early morning hours, Père Dagobert opened the door. He held a lighted candle in his hand, and he silently beckoned the families to follow him. They entered the cathedral, and there they discovered the bodies of the six slain ringleaders had somehow appeared there. A dark cloth covered each of the bodies on the floor. How the priest had managed to spirit these bodies into the church and from under the noses of the Spanish authorities is still unknown. A funeral mass was held, and then in the driving rain, the families managed to get the bodies to the cemetery, where each was entombed. The graves were then sealed in such a way that no traces of the burials could be found. The miracle was never forgotten by the people of New Orleans, and Père Dagobert remains a mysterious and beloved figure in the city until his untimely death in 1776. He was interred in a crypt beneath the altar of the cathedral, and many believe that he has never left this place, still content to watch over his parishioners from the other side. They believe that it is Père Dagobert's voice that has been heard intoning the Kyrie Eleison near the cathedral, and that his spirit is still keeping watch over New Orleans two and a half centuries after his death. Despite the way in which their rule was implemented in the city, the Spanish era turned into a peaceful time in New Orleans. They governed the region with moderation and without the corruption that soiled the administrations of previous French governors. New business began coming to the city and the population of New Orleans more than doubled. As far as commerce and the census were concerned, New Orleans had the semblance of a bustling city. However, its physical aspect was still that of a dirty, poorly built frontier settlement. Most of the houses were rough structures of cedar, planks and logs, and large areas of swamp still existed within the city limits, serving as a breeding place for insects. That would all be changed, though, with the first of two devastating fires. 
On March 21, 1788, a lighted candle on the altar of a chapel in the home of Don Vicente Nunez, the military treasurer of the province, set fire to draperies and soon consumed the building. Carried by a strong south wind, the flames spread quickly. As the city was constructed almost entirely of wood, the flames devoured it. The fire started on Good Friday, and because of the holiday, the Capuchin monks refused to allow the church bells to ring a warning to the populace. As a result, the fire was out of control before enough men could be gathered to try and stop it. Section after section of the city was destroyed, including the government house, the jail, the residences, the business section, the church, and ironically the monastery of the monks who would refuse the bells to be sounded in the first place. Only a row of houses along the levee was spared, along with the Ursuline convent, which had been built from brick and tile. The second great fire occurred on December 8, 1794. It started in a courtyard on Royal Street where some children were playing with flint and tender. The flame spread to a nearby barn and then fanned by the north wind swept through a large portion of the city. More than 200 buildings were destroyed and all the stores, save for two, and several important government buildings. Ironically, the two fires turned out to be a blessing in disguise. The city that was destroyed by fire was a congested French community of poorly built wooden homes that had been badly arranged. The old part of New Orleans is still called the French Quarter today, but all of the buildings that date from colonial times are Spanish in both design and architecture. The rebuilding of the city began immediately after both disasters, and Spanish architects and builders took over the construction. The city that came from the ashes was one of brick and plaster, with heavy arches and roofs of tile. The buildings were erected flush against the sidewalks. Balconies overhung the streets, and shaded courtyards were placed between them and behind the stately homes, hiding banana trees, fountains, and flowers. The fires and the subsequent reconstruction were the best thing that could have happened to old New Orleans. For those New Orleans residents still loyal to France, news came in the late 1790s that brought hope that they might once again be regarded as French citizens. News of the French Revolution reached the colony, and many of the residents became filled with patriotism, and there were cries for liberty in the theaters and public places. When the news of the execution of Louis XVI reached New Orleans, there was open celebration. In 1800, the people of New Orleans discovered they were French again. The city had been given back to Napoleon of France as a result of a secret treaty, but Napoleon was busy that year conquering the Turks, the Austrians, and the Italians, so he couldn't be bothered to send over a new governor, so he allowed the Spanish to keep running it. But not for long. By 1804, the city belonged to the United States. Napoleon needed money, and President Thomas Jefferson purchased the Louisiana Territory from France. It was the last thing that most New Orleans natives wanted to hear. American merchants, travelers, and workers on the flatboats that had been bringing goods down the Mississippi for years were not considered civilized by the residents of New Orleans. Many of the Americans constantly caused trouble with the police by fighting and drinking, and American merchants were considered uncouth, and their wives were even more so. Although business was carried out between the two groups, there was no socializing, and even the wealthiest American merchants and their wives were snubbed by local society. Because of this, the Americans created a society of their own and eventually created their own section of the city outside of the boundaries of the French Quarter. Altercations between the locals and the Americans were not infrequent, and at last, a boundary had to be created between the two societies. A strip of land between the French Quarter and the American section was designated as neutral ground by an act of Congress in 1807 that later became known as Canal Street. 
By 1810, with its mixture of French and Spanish-speaking natives, Anglo-Americans, slaves, and free people of color, New Orleans had become the largest city in the South and the fifth largest in America. A new era of prosperity came to the city, and New Orleans aristocrats filled their homes with the finest Persian rugs, crystal chandeliers, and the best French wines that money could buy. No matter how luxurious the city seemed, though, it was not a place for the weak. Just as in the early days of the colony, the city, located below sea level, was oppressively hot and humid in the summer months. There were cholera, yellow fever, and malaria epidemics. Those not killed by the outbreaks of disease struggled to find their cause. Days of prayer were organized and cannons were blasted each day to break up the clouds over the city, thinking that perhaps they were responsible for the epidemics. There were storms, hurricanes, and frequent floods. The spring flooding would usually pour about two feet of muddy water and debris into the city. And to add insult to injury, New Orleans was also considered to be one of America's most dangerous cities. Crime, bloodshed, and murder were considered commonplace. But fires, hurricanes, and illness aside, Louisiana became the 18th state in the Union on April 30th, 1812. Barely a month later, Congress declared war on Britain, and New Orleans would go on to be the scene of one of the last battles fought during that war. But New Orleans survived the war, as it would the Civil War nearly five decades later. By then, the city had the largest cotton market in the world and was by far the wealthiest city in America. But the war and reconstruction that followed was disastrous for New Orleans. Business and commerce suffered through the end of the 19th century, largely because the city did not attract major manufacturing as other southern cities did. The effects of the Civil War lingered until around 1914, when World War I caused New Orleans to be recognized as a major shipping port. World War II finally brought prosperity back to New Orleans as the local shipyards began to produce vessels for the Navy. After the war, the city reaped the benefits of the oil boom in the offshore fields of the Gulf. But that only lasted until drops in oil prices and rig accidents put that industry in jeopardy too. New Orleans was then forced to turn to the saving grace of many struggling cities, tourism. The city remains one of the most popular destination locations in the United States. Hundreds of thousands of people flock to New Orleans every year to drink, eat, and party on Bourbon Street, take tours, and see the local sites. Only the disaster caused by Hurricane Katrina in 2005 has managed to dim the lights of New Orleans in recent decades, and even that didn't last for long. So what is it that we love so much about this city? New Orleans has a history of terrible events, murders, corruption, war, bloodshed, prostitution, gambling, slavery, and more. So what attracts us to this place? Do we talk about it, write about it, and visit New Orleans because of that dark history? Perhaps. But whatever the reason, it's impossible to stay away. New Orleans is such a compelling place, in fact, that legend has it. Even the devil himself once came to stay for a while. Satan and his lover, the story goes, once lived in an ornate mansion at 1319 St. Charles Avenue. The woman that he kept there was an exotic creature with white skin and dark hair, and he dressed her in the finest silks and presented her with priceless jewels. The house, called the Devil's Mansion by those in the neighborhood who always passed by it on the other side of the street, was built sometime in the late 1820s, although no one seemed to know the precise date. There were only vague records of the land being acquired, and then the house began to be built. The legend claims the devil started the house with one room and then added another room to it each night. But he wasn't known for his construction skills. No two rooms had the same floor level. 
All over the house, steps led up and down to enter one room to the next. The devil's mistress was a stunning French woman named Madeleine Frenau. She was a beautiful young woman who wanted for nothing. No servant stayed in the house, but the spirits of the dead kept the place clean and served Madeleine her meals. Then one day, the beautiful French woman disappeared without a trace, and the house was abandoned. For several years, it remained empty. The windows grew dark, and the ornate decor of the mansion was covered with dirt and grime. Vines and mold grew over the bricks, and the house began to fall into a state of decay. Around 1840, the house was sold, and a family moved into it. Soon, however, they began to speak of ghosts. The family attempted to entertain and hold lavish parties in the mansion, but the place was so forbidding and oppressive, they eventually fled the house in horror. The spectral events that finally drove them away were centered in the great dining room of the house. The huge room ran the entire width of the mansion and was a shadowy, gloomy place with steps that led into the central hall, the butler's pantry, and the rear yard. It was in this room that a blood-curdling tableau was enacted every night. No matter what other furniture was present in the room, an enormous dining table would appear in the chamber as the sun began to set. It would materialize beneath the crystal chandelier and would be covered with white linen. Two places were set at the table with heavy silver, crystal plates, and glistening goblets. Before each place setting, a figure would appear, one of a man and the other a woman with dark hair and alabaster skin. No voices were heard, although the phantoms appeared to be deep in conversation. Then suddenly, the eyes of the woman flared wide and she sprang from her seat. She snatched up a cloth napkin from the table and pounced on her companion. The cloth was twisted around his neck as she pulled it tighter and tighter. The face turned to crimson color and then blood burst from his mouth, spewing out over the table. The woman pulled at the knot of the napkin until the man finally ceased to struggle. He collapsed onto the table and the woman stared at him with satisfaction. And then she saw her hands, which were stained with the man's blood. Her eyes widened in horror and she tried to wipe the stains onto the man's clothing, onto the napkin, the tablecloth, and even the curtains of the room. No matter what she touched, she left red streaks behind. Finally, she ran from the room, stumbling up and down the many steps until she vanished without a trace. This terrible scene replayed itself over and over again, year after year. Each new tenant that moved into the house soon abandoned it again. Some stayed a week, others a month, and a few, only a single night. One act of the macabre play was more than enough to convince them they wanted no part of the house. Until one family remained there for a length of time, and that was the family of Charles B. Larendon and his wife, Laura Beauregard Larendon, the daughter of Confederate General Pierre Beauregard. Apparently, the Larendon family witnessed the ghostly murder take place a number of times, but somehow they became accepting of it. They loved the house and found that the haunting was a small price to pay for the long halls, comfortable window seats, Italian fountain, and the richly carved marble fireplaces. They remained in the mansion for several years and then their infant daughter died. Laura passed away a short time later. Broken and shattered, Charles stayed on in the house and became a recluse. He turned away his family, his old friends, and his well-meaning neighbors and immersed himself in his own sad and lonely world. He had only the ghosts to keep him company, and he kept detailed and eccentric journals and diaries of his many experiences with them. His notes eventually unveiled the secrets of the mysterious house and the gruesome murder. Charles claimed that when the devil built the mansion for his lover, he never dreamed that she would take up his wicked ways and betray him. 
Madeline had not been living in the house for long before she began to grow lonely and tired of the mansion's lifeless rooms. She was left alone to wander the place while the devil was away for days at a time. Eventually, she found her own lover, a young man named Alcide Kinsinan. He was a vain and heartless man, but the two of them found such physical pleasure in one another, they were unable to stay apart. He came to the mansion as often as he could, unaware that he had a diabolical rival for Madeline's affections. One night, Alcide was in a foul mood. Madeline asked him what was wrong, and he told her of a strange encounter that had taken place a few hours earlier. He'd been on his way to her home when he was stopped on the street by a tall, dark-haired man with burning eyes. The stranger pointedly asked him if he knew Madeline. Alcide replied truthfully she was his lover, and in fact he was on his way to see her at that very moment. The sinister stranger laughed, showing off a row of sharp-looking teeth, and confessed that he too was Madeline's lover. However, the stranger said he had grown tired of her. He offered his mistress to Alcide along with a fortune in gold, but with one condition. Alcide and Madeline had to leave New Orleans, and the two of them had to change their names to Monsieur and Madame L. Alcide was puzzled as he told of his experience to Madeline. What could the L stand for, he asked her. She shook her head. I don't know, she replied, but a cold chill swept through her. She knew that the single initial stood for Lucifer. The stranger had told Alcide that he could take Madeline away with him that very night. When she heard this, Madeline was thrilled. She had grown tired of her lonely existence and now dreaded the time she was forced to spend with the devil. She begged her lover to free her from her prison. But to her surprise, Alcide laughed coldly. He too had grown tired of Madeline. There were many other younger and more beautiful women that he could have, he told her. Madeline was the mistress of two men, and his opinion, little better than a prostitute. Madeline was furious, and before Alcide could act, she took a cloth from the table and wrapped it around his neck. With almost inhuman strength, she wrapped it tightly, tighter and tighter, so tight that an artery burst in his throat and showered Madeline with blood. He collapsed onto the table, a dark stain pooling outward from his body. Madeline tried to wipe the cloth from her clothing and her body, but everything she touched seemed to be stained with it. She ran around the mansion in a panic and then collapsed onto the floor in the hallway. She was terrified when a dark shadow crossed the lamplight. The devil had come home. He laughed, and when he saw her and her murdered lover, he lifted up Alcide's corpse onto his shoulder. He entwined the figures of his other hand into Madeline's hair, and he savagely pulled her through the house. They climbed the stairs to the topmost level of the mansion, and the devil shoved her out onto the roof. There, perched on the peak of the gable, he devoured the body of Alcide, leaving only a few shreds of bone and bloody clothing behind. He tossed these down to the alley below, and the neighborhood cats fought over the remaining pieces of skin. But the devil's hunger was not yet satisfied, and soon Madeline joined her lover in death. The devil's mansion was abandoned after the death of Charles Larendon. A Mrs. Jacques and her family came to live in the mansion, but they too fled the house in terror. They reported that not only did they see the scene in the dining room, but the smell of smoke was often present in the house when no fires were lit. In addition, they claimed that doors opened and closed by themselves, locked and unlocked, and that phantom footsteps roamed up and down the corridors. It was said that the door to the bathroom seemed to be the focal point of the activity. The knob to this door would turn back and forth both day and night, as if someone wanted desperately to get in. There was no explanation for this oddity other than that the ghost of Madeline was looking for a place 
where she could wash the blood from her hands. The house became an enigma to the neighborhood and a place of mystery and rumor. It was finally torn down in 1930, but remained a curiosity until that day. For those who did not dare to go inside of the haunted mansion, they could still stare in awe at the mark the devil had left behind on the place. It was the stone face of a demon. Its lips pulled back in a hideous snarl, looking out from the gable of the house. It was a reminder, some said, of the time when the devil ate a meal so to speak, in New Orleans. And because uh, I was playing back the conversation that Lee and I had last night, and um, she's like, "Oh, my voice!" And I was like, "Is it, is, like, is it weird?" And she's like, "Yeah." And I, I, it was so weird for me for a while, and now I've done it so much that yeah. It's well, with not uh, you work, it's work now too. Sure, you know, so you you hear get it a over lot it. more. But I remember yeah. it was the weirdest thing, and I know I read up on why it sounds weird to you when it's your own voice, but I can't remember what it was. Yeah, Dave and Donna were. I saw, when I saw them today, we were watching some of those old travel channel shows that were on that because I was in like 20 of them yeah. in all different stages, usually different sizes and beards. <laughs> but Donna said, do you know who that is to Dave? And he looked over at the TV because no, I have no idea, some ghost nerd. And she <laughs> said, I, right. now close your eyes and listen to it. And the ED goes, oh my God, that's Troy. And he said, I didn't even recognize you. I said, I know, believe me, I know. You I, are I've seen those. Benjamin Buttoning, I <laughs> oh, tell man. you what. Well, I don't know about that. I don't think I'm getting any younger, but at least I can hide more of my face with a beard. I so. guess, you, but you just—you look so different. That's why I make the joke that you killed the real Troy Taylor. But <laughs> I won't make those jokes anymore when we're alone in a hotel room. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. Okay. Are you ready? I am ready. Thanks for tuning into the American Hauntings podcast, the show where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. This is the first episode of our brand new season, Haunted New Orleans. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me is my co-host, author, historian, crime buff, and the founder of American Hauntings, Mr. Troy Taylor. Hey, oh, I earned a mister. You did. Awesome. I f- yeah. I, I'm respecting you a lot today. <laughs> Why? I don't know. I just made Why that Why start up. now? It's, I don't understand. <laughs> three seasons already. Uh, season Season four, man. This is and yeah, and I'm I um, am excited about this one. I, I think Were you that not I before? no, it wasn't that I wasn't. I mean, I, I have been all along. Although the last season, just when we started it, it just looked on the horizon right. of this endless long seventeen episodes, as it yes. turned out. Yes, but I've actually plotted out the episodes for this season. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a rough, it's a rough plot. Yeah, sure, I wouldn't hold you to it. Yeah, but. It's not going to be any shorter, but at least it'll be all different things. Right. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, and I'll know what to expect a little bit. Right. Um, maybe, I right. guess. Well, and somewhat anyway. Yeah. So I like to surprise you with what it's going to be about. Hey, I appreciate it, man. You keep me on my toes. Yeah. Uh, how was Halloween? Good. Busy. Yeah. Busy, yeah. Um, 
October is always busy. And uh, but then the end of the month when I went out to the uh, uh, the thing in Utah, yeah, this the. Um, Make-A-Wish. Yeah. God, doggone it. Uh, the Make-A-Wish Foundation thing was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a really good time out there. I mean, I always have a good time visiting out there anyway, but I posted a lot of pictures on Instagram from our travels and our things that we were doing. But it was a lot of fun. Uh, we raised, oh gosh, several thousand dollars That's that awesome. night yeah. for, uh, for, for Make-A-Wish. And I think with all of the other events that April Slaughter had done, um, it was enough that Make-A-Wish needed to give a child their wish. Oh, so okay. we, we kind of capped it off with the event she'd already done earlier in the season. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this, so it turned out to be great. That's awesome. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Richard Eastep was there. Um, some of you may remember him from the conference last year. Mm-hmm. Tall British guy. Uh, yeah. So we had a good time. We had a real good time. So he'll he'll be back again this year. So it'll be nice to see him again. So Awesome. Fun. Well, I'm proud of you. You did a good thing. Well, it was fun. Good it was cause. a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Do you know who has done... Who, who has been a part of more Make-A-Wish things than anybody else? It's Celebrity. The Rock. No, close. No, I thought he might be. But John Cena. Really? Like, oh, yeah, I can far. see that, too. Yeah. I can see that, and he, too. And he like, yeah. used to get on my nerves, but now after he did that, I'm like, you know what? Okay. Yeah, I mean, I'll, he's, I'll he's kind of annoying. But, sure. but in, a, in, a, in a, like a, a, a big, loud kind of yeah. way. Yeah, that's, sure. That when I say annoying, that's what I mean. It's sure. Just, but it got, you know... He's a wrestler. That's kind of his job. He had a rap to album be... too. Oh, okay. See, so don't yep, tell before me stuff he was like an actor. Did he really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know. Uh, that. I think it's called Bad Bad Man or something oh, like that. No. I don't know. That's unfortunate. Anyway, but hey, he's made a lot of wishes come true. Ex- so well, good. Good I'll for him. Forgive him for that. Yes. Anyway, moving on. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how we got onto that. I don't either. Um, housekeeping stuff. So we're recording from the Best Western. Yes. Um, and we have a bunch of other stuff coming up here. We do. Shortly. We do actually. Um, just this past Friday, uh, my new book came out. I, I oh, didn't. Yeah. I made notes of things and didn't even write that one down. Yeah, you think um, that'd be top of mind? Yeah, I uh, my new book came out, Cabinet of Curiosities Four. Mm-hmm. Um, it is curiosities um, continue. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> it, it, each one is is based on objects. Like the first one was the story of the supernatural through twenty objects, and then it was the unexplained, and then it was. Uh, objects that were related to different haunted hospitals, prisons, and asylums. That was book three. This one is actually hotels. Oh, um, okay. It is uh, 20 keys from haunted hotel rooms. Interesting. And so it's 20 of my favorite. I didn't I didn't put them in order of how haunted anything was. I just picked my favorite haunted hotels mm-hmm. from around the country, some of which I've had personal experiences at, uh, some of which just had great history. All of them, It's this is not just like a travel guide. This is kind of a behind-the-scenes thing. I really dug deep mm-hmm. on a lot of this stuff. I, I did um, a, a really lengthy chapter on the Congress Hotel in Chicago mm-hmm. because nothing has really ever been written I mean, there have been some writings about it, but nothing in depth. And this is the first time, I think, as far as I know, any book has ever really gone in depth into the history of the Congress. And, oh, man, you want to talk about a weird place. And I mean, I've never seen one building with so many suicides in it. Really? Seriously. Um, And I think I found them all, as far as I know. And there's a lot. And some of them are really bizarre. Yeah. So it was fun. It was a fun book to do. I... I was, I wouldn't say I was dreading it. I just thought that, you know, I wanted to do a ghost book because I've done so many oddball things lately. And Mm -hmm. I wanted to do a book about haunted places. And I thought, well, this might be too much like every other haunted place book I've done. But it turned out to be 
really a blast. Yeah. I mean, it was a real, it was one of those books that I hated to finish because okay. it was that much fun writing it. So anyway, um, if you're interested, pick it up. Don't forget to use uh, your podcast discount. If you just put in podcast when you check out, you get 10% off. So I could have well saved. I could have saved so much money. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, it's only it's on sale for $15 for the first week. So it's a big dollar fifty. But hey, why not? Yeah. So awesome. What else we got? Well, in February, uh, and I know that seems like well, this seemed like a long way off. I know the middle of November, and it got here before we knew it. So February eighth. Uh, is Dead of Winter. Mm -hmm. uh, we talked about that a little bit. Um, it's a free event. We do it every year. Uh, it's at the Mineral Springs Hotel in Alton. Uh, admission to the event is a canned food or non-perishable item that we donate to local food banks. Um, we've got a lot of stuff going on that day. Uh, we had a lot of speakers. Uh, if you go to the website, you can take a look, AmericanHauntings.net. Uh, it'll give you the list of all the speakers and all the events that we have going on. We have some after-hours events and some during-the-day events. We have two Black Mirror scrying sessions that Renee Cruz is doing um, in the haunted swimming pool. Oh, okay. So we're kind of putting a different spin on it. This mm -hmm. isn't going to be just in a hotel room somewhere. This is going to be in the haunted swimming pool. And I know Black Mirror scrying sessions are supposed to reach people that you know who have died mm -hmm. but i mean you know put something in a place like that yeah, who knows why you might not show up be careful anyway we're having a ghost hunt that night which is almost full so you should get on that if you're hoping to do it we have a ghost hunt at the unitarian church that night and then i am also doing an evening with hh holmes dinner i'm hosting that night and it's about half full now um, the dinner is, um, you know, H.H. H. Holmes, the serial killer, Devil in the White City, uh, the murder castle, all that stuff. So it's um, it'd be a fun one of those evening with events that I do. And this will be one just for people who are attending Dead of Winter. So um, and speaking of evening with events, uh, we've got uh, several that are a couple. We've already had one sold out. Uh, for spring already, Dang, uh, but hey, we've okay. got coming up. Um, we've got one with the Limp family mm -hmm. uh, coming uh, in January 11th, I believe. We sold out one of the St. Louis Exorcism events, so we added another one in April. Uh, we've got an evening with the Bell Witch, which is a super scary haunting. Yeah, um, an evening with the Spirit World, which is going to be uh, you know the seances and mediums and spiritualism, all that stuff, 19th okay. century, early 20th century. Mm -hmm. um, an evening with the missing, which I'm really excited no about. No one's going to be there. Well, <laughs> let's hope not. Let's hope not that that's not the case. But it'll be a lot of people who have vanished without a trace. Yeah. And I'm excited about that because I'm actually currently working on a new edition of my book, mm -hmm. Without a Trace. Um, and I've taken and gotten rid of almost all the old stories and am reviving it with mostly new and some of my favorite of the old ones, but mostly new stories. So, And you gave it to me for my birthday. I know, the, the old one. Yeah. Well, that's because it was going out of print. So I'm just <laughs> thanks, kidding. Thanks, I, yeah. <laughs> Great. Uh, but yeah, then we'll be back with Lizzie Borden and some of that kind of stuff, some of the favorites that we did this past year. So, and that's just spring. We haven't added anything for next summer or fall. We've added a lot of ghost hunts and all kinds of things. So you can find all that stuff at AmericanHauntings.net. That's our main website. 
Uh, we've also posted the entire, the full Haunted America conference website, including the new t-shirt design, all that stuff. It um, looks cool. Yeah. After our speakers, all the events, uh, all the new, we have all new workshops. Every workshop we're having at the conference this year is brand new. We've never done it before. Nice. So they're all, I mean, familiar faces, but all new workshops. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can go to ghostconference.net for that, or you can get there from americanhauntings.net too. But And I'm sure we'll talk more about that later. But tickets do go on sale January 6th. So uh, keep that in mind. If there are after hour events that you want to make sure you get into, you've got to make sure you get your tickets early. So awesome. Yeah. And we have a lot um, of other new things for season four uh, that are not event related necessarily, but um, like updated the website. Uh, You can search for podcasts on there now. It was a big pain in the ass, but it's done. (laughs) But it's done. Um, Yeah. You can search for stuff. Uh, I've updated the newsletter. I'm going to be more active on social. I'm going to put some new stuff in the shop. Um, I'm going to push our episodes to YouTube, by the way. Oh, wow. Apparently okay. people listen to podcasts really? on YouTube. It's like Let a thing know. people do. Huh. Um, we'll see what happens. Yeah, wait, well, hey, why not? Yeah. Um, if you are one of the subscribers on Patreon that gets a t-shirt every couple months, please check your email and respond so I know what shirt to send you. <laughs> yeah. um, and then we put out a survey a while back uh, before we were going to do season four to get some feedback. And we had a lot of responses from that. We got a lot of really interesting feedback. Um a lot of it was really, really good. A lot of it hurt my feelings. It was all great. Um, but we're, we've, we're going through that and, and taking it into account. So I just I really appreciate people taking the time to fill that out and let us know what you think about the show and how we can improve it and, and make a better show for everybody. You want to dive into some listener reviews? Sure. It's been a sure. while. Yeah. Yeah, it has. Yeah, well, we've been off for a few weeks. We had our Halloween episode, and um, we've been kind of in between seasons. So yeah. it has been a bit. Yeah. Okay. So let's see. So we got a lot to get through, but I'm, I'm gonna I split them up for this between this and the next episode. But sure. Right now, uh, this one's titled "My Dream Podcast Realized." This is the holy grail of podcasts and incorporates both history and the paranormal. Love, love, love. Uh, we get a lot of those kind of things. That's People nice. are really happy that yeah, we get nice. the it's... kind of the balance. Well, and you know, we do this for fun. I mean, honestly, yeah. we do this for fun. So we always appreciate hearing from people, even if it's something that it's we could work on or improve. Mm-hmm. Sure. We still do appreciate it. Absolutely. And that was from A.A. Mitten. Uh, this next one's titled Awesome Show. It's a great show, new listener, but I just got through the first two seasons and love it. And that's uh, Nurse Muku. I love that you can just have whatever screen names yeah. you want on here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this next one, no title, just says love, love, love in all caps. Um, every single episode is informative and interesting. I disagree, but I appreciate the sentiment. Uh, that's from, I'm kidding, that's Maverick72. Uh, this next one's just titled American Hauntings. Great job, guys. A real pleasure to listen to. That's from Damn Skippy7. Uh, next, next one's well thought out. Impressed with your show format and research put into your shows. Definitely a trustworthy, fun, informative podcast. I listen at work, uh, episode after episode, the whole eight hours. I hope to read one of your books soon. That's from Styrnos. Um, if somebody's never read one of your books, do you ever have a recommendation for which one to read first? No. Well, you know, people ask me that. And I always say it really depends on what you're interested well, you got in. A wide because I have catalog. such a wide, well, and I have such a wide range of interests that and then I just I write about whatever I'm interested in at the time so you know it's one of those things where it's it's almost impossible to say 
what's right. you know, what's your favorite? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, you know, that's a good um, point. You know, but what are you interested in? And then I can steer you. It's kind of like you know, but you see like Netflix pops in and says, you know, tell us this, and then we'll give you a recommendation for a movie sure. to watch. That's kind of how it is. With people ask me, which one of your hundred and thirty books do you yeah. recommend I read? It's like I don't know. What do you like? <laughs> right. Oh, that's <laughs> you know, fair. that's very fair. Well, but I always shove people toward American Hauntings if they're just kind of starting out because mm-hmm. it's a book that's sort of an overview of, you know, how all this stuff got started from the, you know, early 19th century to all the way to today. Mm-hmm. That's I so that's kind of where I, you know, direct people I, starting out. I think that's so. a good that's a good spot. Uh, just a couple more. This one's titled Wonderful Podcast. Really fun and interesting stories. You all are great storytellers with lots of detail and color. Keep it going. That's from Cycling Girl 12. This uh, is a great podcast, interesting and informative. It, the, the screen name is Frustrated with Twitter. Uh, which, <laughs> I saw that one. It's funny. I really appreciate. <laughs> this next one's titled Obsessed. I live in Alton in what I believe to be a haunted house. I'm obsessed with anything history and paranormal related. I recently discovered this podcast, and it's all I listen to anymore. That's from L. Do pooch. I, I don't, I don't know. Um, but thank you for the review. And this last one says, found you guys from listening to astonishing legends. Oh, listen, yeah, nice. listen to your most recent podcast about horror movies. Like what I hear so far. Look forward to going back and listening to the three seasons. That's from, uh, radical Chris one, two, three. Cool. So thank you for those. Yeah. Um, yeah, Troy did the Astonishing Legends podcast about Velisca. Yeah, um, <laughs> about you weren't, Velisca. T- you weren't tired about I, I, that topic? Yeah, I was, but they asked me, and, and I do like those guys, and they asked me if I'd do it, and I th- felt like going, oh my God, I just did 17 episodes, but... I, I did, and it turned, good into sport. A, it turned into a really long episode with them, but it, it, did. Was, it was fun. So. Yeah, well, I mean, it was... There's it a was, lot to cover. 17 episodes sure, we did, so sure. it's and a they, lot yeah, to cover they, for one. And they did know. two, yeah. You know? Oh, um, yeah, two, that's And it was, right. it was nice, though, to see people that weren't so tired and jaded of the story and excited to ask you mm-hmm. questions, because like, by the end of it, I'm like, oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah, okay, I know. what about this court case? Yeah. Um, no, okay, so let's see. So speaking of listener feedback... There are a couple of things I, I wanted to address. I've been going okay. over the survey results. I've been going through a lot of the um, emails and a lot of the reviews and things. Um, and we've, we've had, like I said, we have great responses from everybody and we're hearing your feedback. Uh, there are a couple of things that I noticed, a couple of themes that people pointed out. Uh, one of them was about, and maybe this because it's personal, one of them was about <laughs> me not knowing what stuff is. Uh, like uh, like an ice box, uh, I think you said on Astonishing Legends. I don't know where you pulled that one out of. Or um, a fedora, or a, uh, this you know uh, lamp, an oil lamp, and stuff like that. I would say ninety percent of what I say is exaggeration and sarcasm. Yes. You see what yes. I see? What I did there? Yes. Um, a lot of times I do know what things are, but Troy and I we like to play with each other because well, I'm, I'm younger than you because, are, well, so but we play it's, it up. It's not only that, but there are, are people who are listening that may not know what exactly. those things are. That's why we do it. Exactly. And I think yeah. you're, you're you're very good at explaining things. So a lot of times I like to say, oh, if somebody doesn't know about this, you'd be a perfect person to explain it to him. So I'll play into that a little bit. And like, <laughs> I know that it didn't take four hours to take your picture in 1976. Like, I'm just trying to be funny. <laughs> right. You know, I'm probably failing, but, um, but also at the same time, my job in here is to learn. So yeah. I'm always going to want to know a little bit more. Well, that was kind of, I think we've gotten, I mean, since we're in our fourth season. We've gotten away from the very first season of the podcast yes. where the whole point of this or the idea, the original theme to the podcast was you asking me questions. Mm-hmm. That was what we started this. That was what it was going to be about. Yeah. 
you know, so, and, and I think people who have come in later mm-hmm. don't, don't always know that. Sure, so it, sure. it makes sense. Yeah, yeah, but I think that's totally fair. And that's right. good feedback to know, especially, yes, sure. I love it when somebody says, hey, you're not funny. And I'm like, you're, you're so right. Because <laughs> yeah. if my jokes are failing, people don't realize they're jokes. I got to work on that. Um, so yeah, we like to give each other shit for stuff, you know, back and forth. Um, but a lot of it's just lighthearted comedy, yeah. but we really do appreciate the feedback. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I probably won't ever address this again. Like, I'm just going to move on and, you know, say, you know, uh, what was it like to, you know, mm-hmm. not have shoes or whatever? I don't know. Um, but yes, but, but I just want to say we hear you and, and thank you. Um, I think that this season, especially people, we had a lot of feedback of, you know, what do you want to hear next season? Some people said more true crime. Some people said get back to the ghost stuff. Um, there was a mixture all over. And I think this is going to be a great mix of yeah, ghost stories, so cold yeah. cases, uh, you know, true crime stuff. Uh, and honestly, I, I love New Orleans. Yeah, we, me too. we got to go there last uh, summer together. It was my, my second time, probably your 50th time. Yeah, there. Something, at least. <laughs> yeah. at le- really? Yeah. That many times? Yeah, I used to go all the time and still like to go. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's such a great balance of like beautiful history, but terrible history, right, rough streets, right. old architecture that's still very charming. Yeah. Um, I like to think, I, f- I have very similar feelings about the town of Alton that I do for New Orleans. Yeah, like, yeah, uh, but I, your point. I'll never tell Alton that. Yeah. Uh, I'd never admit that. But New Orleans is legitimately my favorite place that I've ever been. Yeah, me too. Ever. Yeah, me uh, too. Haven't been everywhere, but I've been to a lot of places. It's my, it's my favorite place. And I am personally, I'm ready for these French names. Oh, I'm not. French in um, high school. That was one thing I was going to do as we got started was apologize in yes. advance for my butchering of French. I took years and years and years of Spanish, but uh-huh. I did not take any French. And honestly, all the French I've ever learned has been in New Orleans, and that is questionable many times. You know, it's like learning Spanish and then going to Mexico. Yeah, that's not... (laughs) Right, we don't really say that. So, yeah, I'm not sure that my... I can tell you my French is horrible. Uh, So I did try to, as I was putting together the monologue, tried to, you know, put put some of the names phonetically so that I could actually keep reading and try to get those names in. I practiced them as many times as I could before I got sure. to them, but holy cow, I'm I'm not a French speaker. So right. I, I will apologize for that. Hopefully the, it doesn't make the stories suffer from, you know, bad telling. I, I tried to make sure that the stories were still good. And when I could take out anything I could barely pronounce, I did. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> uh, yeah, so like I said, a little bit of French in high school. I'm going to help you with some of these names. I'm going to mess up other ones. I'm hoping that people that get mad about the names, though, I'm hoping they're still listening to this point to even hear you apologize. They might have turned it off. Well, they might be so fed up. They weren't that bad, were they? No, they they really weren't. Some of them probably were. Um, No, but I'm I'm kind of lying. The only thing I remember how to say in French is, uh, j'ai un grand poisson rouge dans mon pantalon. It means I have a large goldfish in my pants. (laughs) I can also swap that out with cat, and I probably didn't even say any of that right. But (laughs) with that... You ready to dive in? I am ready. Yes. All right. Let's go to New Orleans. So early 1700s. This so the entire region. This was a setting the stage. Yes. Episode. Oh, sure. Of course. I don't have to do this again, but we right. needed to know how it started. So. Right. Right. Okay. And it, but it, it also turns into a fun story. Yeah. Is fun the right word? I don't uh, know. I don't know. Uh, so the entire region had been claimed by, uh, for France by the explorer LaSalle a couple of decades before, but no one really knew what the do with it. It's kind of like, hey, we're here. Well, they kept now telling what? people there were gold mines and things in sure. Louisiana, but that all turned out to be a scam, as I yes. discussed several times here. And it seems so. like people
people found out but didn't really care? Well, it was was just too deep. I think they'd already been there long enough by the time the whole scheme was exposed that they didn't want to leave. You know, they had established a community in a town by then, and people were were actually living there. Um, the <laughs> the people who would come willingly, right? Not, sure, not everybody else, but right. You know. And then the 1840s, New Orleans. You mentioned earns a nickname of the Wet Grave because the difficulties encountered in burying corpses. Um, yeah, except and, for the top of Canal Street, there are cemeteries up there where they you know bury people, but that's mm-hmm. up high. Above higher, sea level, I guess, it's above or? sea level. It's down in, you know, the, when you talk about New Orleans at this stage of the game, where mm-hmm. we're, you know, in the first part of this episode, you're you're talking about when they were building it, and the entire city was the French Quarter. That mm-hmm. was New Orleans. Uh, that was, you know, what we now think of as the French Quarter. Sure. Um, so that was the whole town. Well, you you can't. They did try and bury people there, right? Uh, but it doesn't. We'll talk about that later. Uh, about the sounds, the okay, the haunting noises that came from the Let's cemetery say, at the night that guy? were not ghosts. So okay. we'll, we'll get to that in a later episode. But you know. That was just a mention. I was just trying to to talk about everything that was wrong with the place. It's a miserable place. It was a like, miserable so place. Hot. Imagine what it would have been like without air conditioning. Yeah, I mean, because that's most of the time. And you know, you you've been down there with me in the summertime. I mean, it's, it's brutal. So hot. It's brutal. But you just sort of get used to it. And I'm sure that people did mm-hmm. back at the time. But you know, when you're out there building a shack, yeah literally in the swamp and Mm -hmm. there's alligators and snakes and mosquitoes. And I mean, this, you know, he's sending home these glowing reports. Oh, this place is awesome. You know? Right. You You could get away with that. And you know, when they, when they were bringing people over telling them, well, you could just go out to the riverbed and just pick up gold right off the ground. You don't even have to dig for it. Right. Sign me up, man. And you know, everybody comes Uh, and then they got there and I'm sure they were Pissed. Very disappointed when right. they first arrived. Well, uh, before we move on real quick, what was that cemetery that we went through last? That's St. Louis Cemetery 1. Okay. We'll, yeah, we'll okay. talk about We'll dive more yeah. into that. Just, yeah, well, we'll get to, we'll have a, a whole episode we'll about on that. It. Yeah. Cool. So, uh, so like I said, law kind of continues the scam. Uh, he starts selling land and stock and it basically almost, what, fucks the country of France? Well, I mean, essentially, I mean, he put the, the whole country on the verge of ruin because the government was kind of his willing conspirator in this mm-hmm. and they were using the money that he was raising and paying him right. and it was just a it was a big ponzi scheme really mm-hmm. and because it inflated the currency because people were wanting to invest in it and then when it all fell apart and they found out they really weren't getting anything because there was no return that see that's the thing about louisiana at the time there was no return on the money because there were no mines. Mm-hmm. There were, was no gold. There was nothing to bring back. It wouldn't be until years later when they started, you know, planting rice and cotton and things like that, that mm-hmm. it would start to generate an income. In those early days, you know, his deal was, is I promised to start a colony down there yep. that's going to make a lot of money. Well, it didn't. Mm-hmm. But the colony got started in spite of itself. And so he had a, to fulfill the promise of 6,000 settlers, uh, 3,000 slaves. So he ransacks jails and hospitals. Yeah. Shortage of women, so they decided to empty the jails of Paris of all the prostitutes. Right, right. An interesting tactic. Yeah. Um, and then in, eventually investors want someone to blame, so they go for the governor. Uh, he's demoted, but all he wants to do is finish the city. Right. And 18, by 1827... And he ends up getting his job back anyway. Right. He just didn't really care. Right. So um, the, the population spikes, and then in come the nuns. 
Um, Casket Girls also is an interesting name. Yeah, well, it's the boxes. Right. You know, that's why they called them that. But right. it's, um, you know, the Ursuline Convent is still there. It's still standing mm-hmm. in, in on the edge, kind of on the edge of the French Quarter, um, down by the French Market. That's the, I think I sure. pointed that out to you. I yeah. think we talked about it on the tour and stuff. Um, but the um, the convent is still there and the, the nuns came in and they they were the first set up the first hospital they set up the schools because mm-hmm. there were children running the streets by this time because no one had ever bothered to do anything like that till they brought the nuns in but the nuns brought in you know there had been and i i made a lot of jokes about how many prostitutes there were in yeah. town and you know the priest who was really upset about it and wrote the governor, we've got to get rid of all the prostitutes. And he said, "Well, get rid of all the loose women. There won't be anybody left." Yes, I love. Um, so I mean, these you know they they had all these men here, and the only way to keep them happy was to find them wives. Mm-hmm. So they found them in any way they could. Well, bringing in the casket girls, um, they were f- girls from families from wealthier families uh, who there had been France had been through several wars by this time. So mm-hmm. there were as many eligible men in France sure. as there should or could have been. So by sending these girls, some of whom were maybe a little older, um, you know, a little older by what I mean by, you know, 19, 20 years were, old. So yeah, they were right, they right. Went older to marry because sure. you girls were getting married at 15, 16 back then. And right. So they brought them to New Orleans trying to, I guess really kind of raised the class standard of the town, mm-hmm. you know, because you had nothing but, you know, prostitutes and women who'd been in prison here and now bringing these girls in and marrying them to some of the business leaders in mm-hmm. town rather than, you know, just some guy who, you know, shovels dirt for a living. Instead, you've got a guy who owns a business. Marrying him to one of these girls would have been much better. And then I have a very sarcastic section in here about the casket girls and the families in New Orleans who all, you know, can trace their lineage back to casket girls, but mm-hmm. never to any of the prostitutes. It's that were funny how that, that works. How that works. Yeah. Well, yeah, so. I mean, it's just... It's clear yeah. how that works. I mean, this is, <laughs> right. they're just not right. fertile. Yeah, and... it's just funny. I, you know, they must have each had like a hundred children. I yes, see, yeah. yes. Well, I, I didn't, and I didn't get the sarcasm when I was reading yeah. it at first, and I was like, yeah. wait, what are you talking about? Because I didn't hear it. I was reading right, it. Right, right, right. It's like, Troy, what are you doing? Um, no, but then, it, then it makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, once the governor had to leave uh, for a while, some shit popped off with the Chickasaw Indiana tribe. It, was that a, a big issue all the time? Well, it, at first they'd had some issues with some of the local Indians, uh-huh. but uh, the governor had managed to make peace with them. Right. Um, so they didn't really start causing trouble to the settlement until after he left. Uh-huh. Uh, and then he was gone for, I believe, like seven years yep. and then came back. But um, it wasn't anything, there were, you know, it wasn't anything too serious. There were some, you know, some fights and some massacres that took place, but not in New Orleans, in other parts of the territory. Gotcha. Other parts of distant away from this particular part of the colony. Got so. it. Okay. Um, I would just feel like yeah. on top of everything that's yeah, gone that's, wrong, yeah. like this would just be a, another thing. But so they bring in another governor, uh, Marquis de Vaudreuil, yeah, I believe. Creates, I guess. Yes, I think sure. I believe. We'll go with that. I remember correctly. Uh, creates super corrupt government, likes to throw a bunch yes. of parties, get rich. City really starts to go downhill. Uh, the, and the worst of these areas later became the French Quarter. Um, you found out, but there's found out there's a bunch of counterfeit money in play, which kind of fucked with his money. So he puts laws in place. Well, only because right, it it hurt his fortune. Exactly. Because what he'd been doing was, you know, selling off. You know, things would come in for the military. He would keep it, sell it off to the 
men who owned stores in town mm-hmm. and then would pass off cheaper stuff to the military. And, you know, any kind of illegal activity that was going on, he got a cut. So you had to get a give a taste back to the governor. Mm-hmm. And so up until this point, everything looked great. But then all the counterfeiting started and that was causing a problem. So he decided to come up with some laws. Right. Uh, these were the very first laws in the city. And, you know, they didn't really... It didn't really go too far. Sure. Um, you know, it was supposed to regulate some of the vice and things, but it didn't really do much. And then eventually he pieces out Canada. Right. Uh, and so I have down that this is important. So in, in 1762, France passed the ownership of Louisiana to Spain in the secret treaty of uh, Fontainebleau. Yeah. That same year, Spain entered the Seven Years' War, the European arm of the French and Indian War, just in time to share defeat with France. As part of the Treaty of Paris at the end of that war, France had to give up its holdings in North America. New Orleans and Louisiana, however, had been given to Spain the year before the war started. So... It was it's a loophole. In, exactly. Yeah. It's, in yeah. a, it's in a weird kind of spot. Uh, but people didn't really like that they belonged to Spain, no. people that lived there. No. So, yeah, there were, you know, that's something else you got to remember, that this country was very divided up at mm-hmm. this point. This is pre-Revolutionary War. The only, the only thing that we think of now is our country today that existed at the time were the 13 original colonies, mm-hmm. which ran right along the East Coast. Everything else belonged to someone else. Uh, they most of it belonged to either Spain or France. Mm-hmm. France had a huge chunk of it, which would become the Louisiana Territory. Spain had Florida. Spain had Mexico. Spain had California. That what we now think of as the Southwest, mm-hmm. some of the Northwest. Uh, the French, you know, had had all of Canada. Britain ended up with Canada um, after the war because France had to give all this stuff up. Um, and Spain had the Louisiana territory because of this deal they had made before the war had started. Right, right. So that's the, that's the way the country here. was divided in the first place. New Orleans just happened to be that nice little big city at the bottom of the map, mm-hmm. you know. Right. So, okay, so people didn't like they belonged to Spain. And in late 17, uh, 1768, 600 New Orleans citizens mounted the first revolutionary expedition of Americans against the European government. Uh, and then the Spanish governor, Don Antonio, f- flees for Havana to get the fuck out of Dodge. <laughs> and then Carlos of Spain is pissed about this revolution, so he sends 2,600-man mercenary team to retake the city, led by an Irishman, Don Alexander O'Reilly. So correct me if I'm wrong here. You have a country of European prisoners and prostitutes recently sold by France to the Spanish being attacked by an Irishman who is fighting French farmers from Nova Scotia. Right, which that's something I wanted to mention too, that most of the revolutionaries that were fighting, most of them who, because the people who lived in New Orleans already, um, most, not all of them, of course, but most of those people were just going to ride with whatever mm-hmm. because half of them were criminals anyway. Right. And the ones that weren't were in business and they just wanted to keep doing business. Sure. The Acadians uh, are now what we, they are the descendants, well, their descendants are the Cajuns. Okay, sure. That now live out through, you know, through southern Louisiana. Uh, but they were farmers who had come down because of the war. They'd come to New Orleans thinking that they would be safe because they Britain had taken over Canada mm-hmm. and they were French speakers. So they came down to um, New Orleans and then rumor, and it was just a rumor, 
that the Spanish were going to sell them into slavery. And it wasn't true, but mm-hmm. they thought it was. Sure. So they just decided, you know, to hell with this. We're going to do something about it. We're going to run these people out of New Orleans. And they got a lot of other people to go along with it. But what right. I'm saying is most of the revolutionaries were Acadians. Mm-hmm. Right. So, well, it's like, wait, wait, wait. So you see what it's like to be a slave and you don't like that? Well, and you right, don't want to exactly, be a slave? Exactly. Why is that? Yeah. So O'Reilly eventually gets the nickname of Bloody O'Reilly after he sent all of his people to death, essentially. And thus is where we get one of the oldest ghost stories in New Orleans. So located in what is now Jackson Square, people hear the voice of a priest, essentially, uh, Pierre Dogobert. Something yeah, like that. I, Dagobert. I, I, that's what I called him. Per Dagobert. Per Dagobert. That and, was, sounded the best. Right. And we, I remember seeing the square. Um, yeah, Jackson Square. We were there. Yeah, it's the whole square, but it's it's the alley. Um, oh, yes, yes, yes. Next to the cathedral. That's where the voice comes from. Right. It's the alley that goes up next to that Pirate's f- Alley bar where we drank all the absinthe. Leah and I found a black yes. cat in that yes. alley. Yes, that alley. And that was creepy. Yeah. Um, and we found a person, too, but that was a whole other thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, like you said, uh, O'Reilly killed everyone involved with the rebellion, uh, but he really wanted the ringleaders. So he gathers up 10 people, executes six of them, and he wouldn't let them be buried, left them in public, and they were guarded. Uh, basically, their, their dead bodies are guarded. Right. I guess to send a message. It was just to send a message to uh, anybody else who thought that, you know, starting a rebellion was a good idea. Mm-hmm. This is what happens to you. Right. I mean, so that's you, a, why you crucify people. It's kind people of a common or, tactic. Right, yeah. right. It's, you know, the all the way back to the days of Spartacus. When sure. They, you know, line the Roman road with all of the slaves who started the rebellion. Right. Yeah, so. I mean, I, it sends a message. Right, exactly. I, yep. uh, then the mor- so the mourning families are visited by um, Père Dogobert, and he brings them to the cathedral, and he had somehow eventually brought all the bodies there for funerals. Right. So got them away right. from the guards. Somehow spirited them away from the guards right. and brought them to the cathedral. And yeah, kind of give people closure and everything, and so now we say that you can hear his voice in the, right. that in right. that area. That's a story that has been around for a very long time. Uh, and supposedly, and I don't think I mentioned this in the in the story, but it's usually on nights when it's foggy mm. is when they say that they hear the voice. Oh, do they think that's how he did it under the cover of fog maybe, or something? Maybe. I don't nobody knows. That's yeah. the funny thing. I mean, the the ghost story part is a part of the legend of New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And you know, whether or not it's true or not, I, I can't say for a fact. Sure. I mean it's a story that's been around for a very long time, but this event really did happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and he didn't die because of it. Nothing happened to him. He died years later. Uh, but this really did happen. And But to this day, no one knows how it happened huh. or how he managed. I mean, chances are he bribed the guards. Yeah, paid somebody off. Yeah. You know, but sure. it, it all became very mysterious. Mm-hmm. So that's just, you know, that's kind of the, the, the root of the legend and mm-hmm. the ghost story goes along yeah. with it. Yeah, no, so. I, li- I like it. I like it a lot. And if he did pay off the guards, I don't blame him for not telling anybody. Right, like, exactly. Yeah, let it exactly. go down in history. Exactly. So moving on, so the Spanish era eventually turns peaceful. A city starts to grow, but then there are two big fires. Mm-hmm. And I always forget how dangerous fires really were back then, yeah. especially. Well, especially in New Orleans, because the houses were, in, as I described, you know, they just run down wooden buildings mm-hmm. and went and had been laid out pretty haphazardly. The streets weren't laid out the way that they are now. It's it's just like, uh, you know, a great comparison 
This is a much earlier version of what happened at Chicago mm-hmm. in 1871. Sure. When the Great Chicago Fire happened, it was the best thing that could have happened to the city. That's how it got laid out in a grid. Mm-hmm. That's how why we have Michigan Avenue now. I mean, these are things that changed because of the fire, and that's exactly what happened in New Orleans. I don't think it would be the city that it is now if not for these fires and if not for the fact that the Spanish were in control of the city at the time. Mm-hmm. Because when they rebuilt it, they rebuilt what we see now. Those buildings that you see there, you know, we call it the French Quarter because that's who started the city. But it, it technically should be called the Spanish Quarter because mm-hmm. that's where the buildings date from. That's Spanish design, the the, the balconies, the archways, the, the, uh, the, the, the little plazas, the, mm-hmm. the hidden courtyards. All of that stuff is Spanish architecture. And the Spanish rebuilt the city after two terrible fires, including the first, the Good Friday fire, which was the first one with the yes. monks who we refused to ring the bell. Yeah, so them right. that devastated the city, including their monastery. Uh, but then the other one, you know, was just as bad dumb and kids. did as much damage. Yeah, yeah, dumb kids. And it did just as much damage, and but it it created our French Quarter that we all know and love mm-hmm. now uh, because of the fires. And they laid the streets out, you know, in a grid pattern so that things are easier to find. Sure, yeah, and it, and I love walking around that area too. too. The architecture, yeah. it's just it's beautiful. I love yeah, it. There's it's so many so things unique. to see. Yeah. yeah, and it's I mean, yeah. you could you drop me in the middle of that place, you know, out of nowhere, and I'd be like, oh, I'm in New Orleans. Like, right, you, <laughs> right, you know. right. Yeah, you're not going to mistake it for anywhere else in this country. Exactly. Uh, so in 1800, uh, the people of New Orleans discovered that they're French again. Right. But then Napoleon quickly sells the Louisiana territory to Thomas Jefferson in 1804. French and Americans don't really get along. Americans create their own section of the city. Uh, there's a neutral ground that's designated, which is now uh, Canal Street. Yeah, I just think it's funny and thought it was funny that uh, it had to be an act of Congress yeah. that made the neutral ground between the two warring factions. Right, right. Um, and, you know, the other side of Canal Street, I, I never go over there. Oh yeah, I just don't. I just don't. There's nothing I need over there. It's just and there You're are part a lot of the of, problem. There are I know there are a <laughs> lot of hotels and things over there yeah. and things and there's a lot of stuff over there. But I just don't even bother usually. Huh. I love to go up Canal, but up into the you know upper part of the city. Yeah. I don't. I just usually don't go over into that area. I just don't. Nothing I need over there. Huh. So I'm Inter- happy where I'm at. Interesting. So, All right. Well, yeah. we know which side you fall on then. <laughs> yeah, apparently. By 1810, <laughs> with its mixture of French and Spanish-speaking native, uh, Anglo-American slaves, free people of color in New, free, uh, free people of color, New Orleans had become the largest city in the South and the fifth largest city in America. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned those not killed by the outbreaks of disease struggled to find their cause. Days of prayer were organized. Cannons were blasted each day uh, to break up the clouds over the city, thinking that perhaps uh, they were responsible for the epidemic. And we talked right. about this before. We have, because it's they had the same problem that so many other cities did at the time, mm-hmm. um, especially along the river. Um, the cholera outbreaks were the worst, mm-hmm. you know, whether it be in, uh, we talked about that in St. Louis, I think is where we first talked about it. Probably. But Alton, St. Louis, anywhere along the river, uh, to the south for the most part, people didn't understand that the cholera was spread by unclean drinking water mm-hmm. and there was no filtration systems sure. to speak of well, why would or you not think that? you know not not good ones at the time and so not knowing that you know malaria was being spread by mosquitoes or you know all of these other things nobody knew so they did everything they could think of they prayed and that the big thing was firing cannons into the sky because if there were clouds 
you know, it was it, it might bring unclean rain mm-hmm. because they thought that might be what's causing it. And in a way, they were right as far as the water goes, but I'll give not them that. because of the clouds. Right. But, you know, people didn't know. But between the diseases and the heat and the humidity and the storms and the hurricanes and mm-hmm. the flooding from the river, you know, plus, you know, New Orleans is like the most dangerous city in America at yeah. this point. Um it was not a place for the faint of heart, mm-hmm. you know, in the, you know, the first half of the 1800s. Sure. Yeah. And then, but by the civil war, is it really the wealthiest city in America? Yes. yes. That's amazing. The cotton, the cotton market had become so huge mm-hmm. and most of the, you know, no matter where it was picked and processed, it all came to New Orleans to mm-hmm. be shipped. So this made a lot of money for people in the city, and that's where the Garden District comes from, and mm-hmm. that those areas of these big mansions and things that were in the city, um, you know, not necessarily the French Quarter at this point, because right. that's where you went if you wanted to go gambling or find a prostitute, go party. But if you wanted to, you know, to live in a nice house up on, you know, away from the riverfront, it's like the suburbs, right? Sort of, yeah, sort of. Um, that's where you would live. And there was a lot of money coming into the city at that mm-hmm. time. Uh, but the Civil War was was devastating on the city, and Reconstruction was just as bad, um, just like anywhere else in the South. But yeah. uh, people in New Orleans really suffered because of it. Um, we'll, we'll talk more about that in, in our next episode, mm-hmm. about the the main reason that New Orleans was suffering so badly yes. after the Civil War. Uh, but a lot of it had to do with, you know, the fact of losing all this money and the embargoes and the way that the money was being changed in hands and segregation and the, all these kinds of things. And it really wasn't until World War One that the city bounced back. Mm-hmm. And that was because they started using New Orleans as naval bases. Right, right. You know, and that's where our story, our Storyville story will come from later mm-hmm. as to why it ended, why it came to an end. And we'll, we'll get to that in a later episode. But that was all about World War One. Sure. And then it was the oil rigs, and then it was... You know, then the oil prices dropped, and then of course you had the event horizon explosions. And mm-hmm. I was down there the summer after that happened. Yeah, and it uh, made a big. That's where I saw Anderson Cooper was down there. Oh, right okay, story. yeah. Uh, but yeah, it um, that had a big effect on everything. And but tourism has become like New Orleans cash cow. Sure. Uh, but of course, you know, 2005. Yeah. What was it like before and after Katrina? Big How- difference. Yeah. It's a big difference. Um, I was down there the Mardi Gras after Katrina and that's the only Mardi Gras I've ever seen that there's just nobody there. Really? It was just really quiet. And, um, it, it, it did make a huge difference for years. Mm-hmm. It took, it took a good 10 years for the effect of all of that to finally wear off. Mm-hmm. I, I I always use, because of the business that I'm in, one of the, the things I always use as a marker between Katrina and post-Katrina is how long it took for the bad ghost tours to come back. Oh, okay. Because after Katrina, it was down to like, like the two best tours were still around. Mm-hmm. And they stayed in business. Haunted History and one other tour stayed around. And... For a few years, they were the only ones. And then new ones started coming back. Now there's like, because before Katrina, there were like 
10 or 15 of them, and most of them were terrible. Mm-hmm. And now there's, you know, again, we're back up to 10 or 12 different ghost tours again. Yeah. And the, the big ones are still the ones doing most of the business, but there's a lot of little ones again now too. But that's how long it took. Mm-hmm. It took a good 10 years before you started to see a lot of the restaurants open back up. And I mean, even the French Quarter, which wasn't hit by the flooding from Katrina, people in people's minds, they just saw New Orleans and didn't sure. come. You know, they didn't come. We're, we're going to have an entire episode about Katrina and some of the ghost stories okay. and the effect it had on the city later on in the season. Right. So we, you, we will get back to that. And when you talk about the tourism you know, industry being so big down there, I remember when we were down there, I, I was going to go for a walk in the morning and uh, I saw some of the, our group and they were eating breakfast and they, from this like open window, they called me yeah, into this Pierre restaurant. Yes, yeah. that place. Yeah. And I go in and you can tell it's like, cutthroat to be in the service industry because oh, yeah. they're putting on a show. Yeah, well, and, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And our waiter was a lot of, phenomenal. Oh, I know. I know who he is. Because he has to be. Yeah, he's, yeah. I've had him several times. There's a guy at the gumbo shop yeah. that I've been, I ask for his table when I go in and we've had him, I've had him for, I don't know, good 10 years or yeah. more. And he's just a, it's a great guy. I mean, it's not like he remembers you. He sees a zillion oh, people. Sure. But I remember him and he's just such a great waiter. And yep. It's just like that down there, mm-hmm. you know. It's that like the guy that the guy that um, picked us up at the airport. Did you come in? No, you didn't come in with us. No, I was stuck yeah, in the parking lot guy, for about three hours. Yeah, there's a guy. Um, I will. I'm just going to give the the business a shout out. He works for uh, Posh Transportation, and uh, look him up. Okay. Look up his business if you're coming into the city and you got a group of people and need a van to get to your hotel. Mm-hmm. This guy's the best, and he's just the best. And uh, but that's that's what it takes. Yeah. You know, you've got to leave an impression with people because it is all about tourism and service industry down mm-hmm. there now, you yep. know, and that's that's where all the money comes from. Yeah. And people come and we come back. But look, here we sit remembering these waiters oh. or people that we've worked with. You know, there was a girl who worked in this bar that I really liked that Irish, the Boondock Saint. Yeah, yeah. And she oh, was right. from central Illinois. So I always talk to her when I come in. And actually, she did remember me because yeah. we, we talked so much. But um, but yeah, it's you remember these people if you go often enough. Mm-hmm. You know? I remember I, I sat down for breakfast and this guy's like, you, you know, sugar, you want something to eat? And I was like, <laughs> no, no, I'm good. And he's like, you want a drink? And I was like, I'm still hungover from yesterday. Like, but, but that's it's, the best cure. But it's 9 a.m. And he goes, if, if he says, there's any place you can drink at 9 a.m. in New, it's New Orleans. <laughs> right. I was like, all right, so I got a drink. And he goes, I am going to warn you. He said, uh, I just want to warn you, there is a shot of Bacardi 151 at the top of your drink. But I also want to let you know there's a shot of Bacardi 151 at the top of your drink. <laughs> yeah. He was just like a good, know. you know, oh, yeah. putting on a show, doing yep. a bit. Oh, and yeah. he's great. Yep. Um, so, I mean, but that's the thing. Do you think New Orleans could just be one hurricane away from just being fucked again? Well, you know, the, the thing about it, it, it wasn't the hurricane. Okay. You know, it was, I mean, it was. The perception It was the it? flooding or, okay. caused by the hurricane that did hit... We gotta we gotta get into okay, this okay, in a later right. episode okay, fair enough. because there fair is enough. a whole story behind everything that happened, and okay. it's not it's a story that is worth telling on its own. Okay. So, right. but yeah, I mean, fair enough. It was Katrina. It was all caused by Katrina, but it was caused by a lot of you know accidents caused by people, and uh, okay. then beyond that, it was the perception that that's what damaged the tourism for so long mm-hmm. is 
people were, you know, seeing the things they saw on the news, even though that didn't really affect, like, say, the French Quarter. Right. But it did affect the city as a whole. Okay. I thought, you, it, were, I thought you were saying, like, it's not the hurricanes, the floods. Like, it's not the fall that hurts. It's when you hit the ground. No, no, no. I no, I wasn't being shit. sarcastic. No, we'll uh, we'll talk more about it because it's, it's a story that's worth telling. Perfect. So. Okay. So let's move on then. Sure. You put a question in here. You said, why do people love New Orleans so much? I think we've gone over yeah, that. Yeah, I think we enough. have too. Um, no. But you said New Orleans is such a compelling place, in fact, that legend has it even the devil himself <laughs> once came to stay for a while. Yeah, this is a great, this is a great legend. Um, I love it's this It's a story. great New Orleans story. It's, it's just, you know, it's one of those stories you can't take, you can't take it seriously. Well, of course not. But it's such a cool story that it's, it's a lot of fun. It is a fun, well, I mean, fun's a bad word because there isn't anything nice about this story. No, but it's fun. It's a great, it's a great New Orleans legend. And I, I thought, I kept trying to think, where's the best place to put this? I think this is you a know, And place. I think that putting it at the end of our very first episode was the right place to do. So are you so. going to write a book, The Devil Came to... No, I am not. <laughs> so, I am not. As a legend <laughs> has it, Satan and his lover, uh, Madeline Frenou, I believe. Uh, you would pronounce it, I think. The story goes, once lived in an ornate mansion at 1319 St. Charles Avenue, also known as the Devil's Mansion. Then uh, they both disappear. Spectral events in the great dining room, a, a blood-curdling tableau happened every night. Essentially, this thing just kind of goes on repeat, and it's right. a, the murder of a husband by a wife, and uh, everything she runs and touches leaves blood streaks mm -hmm. everywhere. Um there was one, only one family could stand it for any length of time, seeing this horrific event play over and over again. What does it say about people that get <laughs> used to something like that? Yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not really sure. But yeah, they they became accept, accepting of watching the ghostly murder happen every night. That's bizarre. Yeah. And, and you know, what's, what's fun about the story is that it does take a real place. Mm-hmm. That really did have a gargoyle on it that okay. said was the devil's mark. A real house that these are real people. Larendon was a Charles Larendon was a real person. His yeah. wife was General Bogard's daughter. Mm -hmm. So these were real people and they did live in this house. But see, enough time passes and so the story becomes legend. But he, you know, he, but he wrote a lot he, of this he stuff. He wrote down, a right? lot of this stuff. Well, I don't know anyone's allegedly, actually, oh, allegedly okay. is what I would say. You don't say have on the that. transcripts? No, I do not. So, uh, yeah, it's just one of those stories that's gotten passed down for years. But the, I read it, I read it the first time in a book that was written in the early 40s. Mm -hmm. So that's within a few years of when the house was torn down. Right. So it was still a fresh story at the time. Got so. it. So yeah. So Char Charles' family dies, and he he writes about learning the secrets of the house. And this there was a weird love triangle between the devil, uh, Madeline, and Alcide. Alcide. Alcide, her lover. I believe. Okay. Again, that's how we think. My right. French. And so. so the idea of this horrific event that plays over and over again is essentially this woman uh, was with the devil, and he would peace out for a long time and not come back for you know days on end. So she took up a, a lover. And at one point, the devil and this lover have a confrontation, kind of. Right. And the devil's like, you know what? You can have her. I'm going to give you a bunch of money, too, but you all have to change your name and have a last name of L. Right. And guy doesn't really get what's going on, but he goes back, tells her, and she's like, oh, I know what the L means. Lucifer. And she's like, well, this is great. We can Robert De Niro from Angel Heart. Sure. Have you not seen that movie? Not, you got to watch it. I have not. You got to watch it. I was thinking Devil's Advocate, but that's Pacino. No, you got to watch um, this. And anyway, so he, she's like, hey, this is great. We can be together. We can be rich. And he's like, Psh. Hell no. Like, I don't, I don't want you. Are you kidding me? Um, and so she kills him. 
And that's the the thing that repeats, you know, what you see. So it's a very brutal love story. Um, I love it. Um, and then eventually this woman named Mrs. Jacques uh, and her family also live there. But they see like weird smoke in the bathroom, doorknob turning yeah. a lot. Footsteps and all yeah, kinds of stuff. Yeah, the usual kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but then the house is eventually torn down in 1930. But it is interesting that it you know, was written about so soon yeah, after the house yeah. goes down. Yeah. So, I mean, the stories were already circulating, I think. Probably by that time, because the house had been sitting empty for a while, and it looked spooky. Yeah. So everybody had a story, you know. And um, yeah, it's just, I I just love that story. And I was trying to find a place to put it in, and that was where it ended up. No, it's, so, it's perfect. Yeah. Uh, that's all I have for this cool. episode. Yeah, and I know that deal. was just a little taste, but I promise you the next episode is going to be really upsetting. And It is it is pretty upsetting, <laughs> yes, actually. And so, we're going to get into, I mean, ghosts and true crime we're getting and brutal all, shit. Everything it's, is coming. We have a lot of episodes to go. I, I said at the very beginning that I had mapped it out. Mm-hmm. And, um, I'm just going to tell you right now that it will not be any shorter than the Velisca season. All right. <laughs> but, hey, I'm well, there's down. a lot of great stuff to cover, and we're going to have a lot of fun with it. Um, I've tried to work each episode into a part of New Orleans history and then link it to some of the ghost stories and murders and things that happen with that theme. Mm-hmm. So each episode will have a theme. Sure. So we'll, we'll, that's what I'll tell you just to give you a little bit of a hint of what's to come. Right. And Troy's not like explaining to the audience. He's telling me what right. the outline of our right. season is going to be because I <laughs> right. don't have it. Right. Um, because I, I, don't, I don't give it to him. I gave him, I not. gave him one and then that was a mistake because he kept asking me, well, how come we're not doing this one? Uh, because I changed my mind. Yes. So now I'm not giving it to it's him. It's just so way easier He's just going to get it when he yes. gets it. So. so I'm basically, if anything, I'm half a story ahead of the audience at any given time <laughs> and that's right. it because right. I'll know, oh, this is a two-parter and I've read the whole thing. Yeah. Like exactly. for the next episode, but that's it. It's now time for our Ghostwriters segment. If you have a question or comment about the world of the macabre, email us at AmericanHauntingsPodcast at gmail.com. Our first writer is Colin, and he says, Hey guys, I'm just saying hi from three blocks down from the Axe Murder House in Villisca. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> I just recently discovered your podcast. I'm currently listening to season three, and I'm thoroughly enjoying the backstory about all that happened to this little town. I'm a route driver, and I'm on the road anywhere between 10 to 16 hours a day, and your Whoa. podcast has kept me entertained. Well, that's good. It won't take him long to get through it. Yeah, right? Wow. Keep, keep up the great work. I uh, can't wait to dive into the other seasons. P.S. My last delivery of the day is directly across the street from the Malvern Manor. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. so so I guess my job puts me on my own little ghost tour. Thanks again, guys. Yeah, we have had some events there. We've got yeah. some more in the spring. Yeah. Awesome, awesome. Okay, well, thanks for writing in, Colin. This next one's from uh, Elizabeth, who calls herself the nurse who wants to believe. Uh, basically, she's going through a tough time. She told me a lot of details, but it's personal. I don't want to share it. And she asked us. Uh, she asked a couple questions. Okay. The first one was essentially, uh, so she's a nurse going through a tough time. She's wondering, what do we believe about the afterlife? I'm going to tell you, go to uh, season one, episode 11, which is Halloween, the ghost wonderful time of the year. Uh, We talk extensively about this. we do. Um, Full disclosure, we had a lot to drink. It was a good time. (laughs) People don't love that episode. But we answer a lot of those questions about our own personal beliefs. And I know we kind of do so throughout different episodes. And she also asked what YouTube channels are credible. Um, So it's the thing I want to say about YouTube is it's video. A lot of it's entertainment. So I can't really say for certain, but there's actually a group of guys that we met at the uh, Haunted America conference. Yeah, they were at Haunted America. Unexplained Cases. That's the name of their show. And they do a regular show. um, And I know that it's, it's like 
youtube.com unexplained cases yeah. i think it's the same way as the podcast does but um they do a lot of different investigations and interviews and all kinds of stuff um so i know about them beyond that i don't i don't really know yeah. that many um i don't i since i have to do most of my work on the computer mm-hmm. i don't really use it much for entertainment right because i'm ready to get off of it by the end of the day so i don't pull a lot of stuff up uh unless it's something that i'm you know subscribed to or something sure but yeah i would recommend them that's what i you know for at least for starters awesome yeah so elizabeth check that out good luck with everything that's going on um and then the last one uh i just wanted to give a shout out to this woman named deborah who wrote out a very long email with a lot of different points um about our show uh, I don't want to go through all of them um, individually, but uh, she had a lot of good ideas. She was it was very respectful um, while telling us what she liked, what she didn't like, and uh, asked some great questions. And so I sent her a response. Um, but I just want to say thank you um, for for writing that. And even though it wasn't 100 percent positive, I still yeah, really appreciated okay. it. I, it was the fact that it was just respectful yeah, her opinions, sure. and we asked for it, and we got it. So yeah. thank you very much. Uh, I also have a couple of Patreon shoutouts. So I would like to give a shout out and thanks to Jenny, Maria, Rob, Jennifer, and Carrie. So thank you so much for supporting us on Patreon. Um, it's really nice to, you know, we put the show out for free. It takes a really long time and it's just nice to be able to kind of cover yeah. some of the time yeah. and stuff that yeah. it takes. Uh, so we really, really appreciate yeah. and that. Did you get, what'd you think of the postcards we sent out for Halloween? Which ones the were they? The photo with the photo. Oh, with the eyes covered no, out? Yeah, that was just to cover the identities, but the, the actual photo of I'd, the image. Did you read the back? I don't know. Leah's oh, the one that gets them. I'm not subscribed to the Patreon. <laughs> Leah is. Yeah, well, yeah. But it's on our fridge, but I think it's facing You'll me. have to read the back. Okay. Okay. Well, never right. mind. Then, well, sorry. So. I know somebody tweeted about it and like, yeah. posted that they got it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I'm, I'm not going to give $40 back to myself. <laughs> like, um, But Leah does get them, so I see them all the time, but I'll, I'll have to read it. It's on our fridge right now. Okay. Um, but anyway, you can check that out at <laughs> patreon.com slash American Hauntings. And there's a bunch of cool stuff on there, discounts, um, early access to events, shirts, fun stuff from us. So yeah, check that out. Well, and I'm just going to say thanks for listening. So, and thanks to everybody who has been uh, writing, tweeting, you name it. Uh, how excited they were about the new season starting. So we hope that you enjoy it. We hope you're not disappointed by the first episode. I don't think you are. Yeah. I hope. Um, I had a lot of fun with it. I enjoyed it. So hopefully you did too. And uh, hopefully you'll share it with your friends. Leave us a review on iTunes. If you haven't done that yet, we'd really appreciate it. Uh, it makes it easier for people to find the show. And uh, I'm going to actually not interrupt Cody because this is our first uh, slightly rewritten ending to the podcast, so I will let him actually do this without me bothering him this time. Uh, but this is the only time, so because we don't really need to read it again once we do it once, right? I don't, just keep telling everybody, hey, just go back to episode fifty-three. Well, two so. things: one, I don't know if I believe you. Two, uh, <laughs> I I read this, but I never read it out loud specifically in case you wanted to interrupt me. It'd just be a shit show. <laughs> I'm but try and we'll not see. Too. So this episode of the American Hauntings podcast was written by Troy Taylor. And it was produced and edited by oh, me, yeah, that was me, Cody yeah. Beck. In each bi-weekly episode, we try to combine history, folklore, legend, imagination, and the truth to reveal more about America's most haunted places, strange tales, and unexplained events. You can find the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows and at AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com, where we have show notes, more info about the episodes, and links to more from American Hauntings. Because American Hauntings isn't just a podcast. It's books, tours, events, and more. And our main website is AmericanHauntings.net. 
And if you want even more from us, you can be a supporter of the podcast on Patreon. You can get bonus episodes of the show, t-shirts, discounts, great stuff in the mail, and more. Thanks to our supporters, we have upgraded our equipment for the show, and with continued help from you, we can dedicate more time and resources to creating even more shows in the future. Take a minute and check it out. We think you'll like what you find at patreon.com slash American Hauntings. Be sure to get in touch if you have any comments about the show, suggestions, reviews, jokes, or just want to tell us what you really think of us. We're reachable via email, on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and by Carrier Pigeon. Until next time, goodbye, so long, see, see you later. later. Carrier Pigeon, huh? <laughs> I had to add something. I did see that, but it didn't really click. Um, I might... Wait, you're the one reading.